This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm joined this week by special guest Joshua Wilson, which you would know if podcasting weren't an audio format, because we are, of course, uh, sitting down recording against a meticulously composed background with very helpful, dryly funny subtitles underneath us. So uh, I'm hoping that you are wearing your Steve Zissou stocking cap, Joshua, and that, you know, we've got everything just so for recording this week. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully your uh, seeing and believing audience will not uh, cry when they hear us today. No crying allowed. No crying allowed. Absolutely not. We are, of course, making all these Anderson references, listeners, because we are reviewing the new Wes Anderson film that was just released last week. It's The French Dispatch being reviewed on this episode, episode 312 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, listeners, we are here on episode 312 of Seeing and Believing, and I'm really excited to have Joshua Wilson on the episode this week. Uh, the French Dispatch was one of my more anticipated films of the the end of the year, so I'm looking forward to getting to talk about it this week, and I'm especially looking forward to talking about it with you, Josh, because... I know that for your Halloween costume, you literally <laughs> dressed up as Steve Zissou. So yeah. you know your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, all of Wes Anderson's films. But yeah, especially The Life Aquatic. So Yeah, I think, wasn't there, there, there was a time when Wade and I, back in the day, we did an Anderson-focused episode where we kind of ranked his films right. and... Uh, I mentioned that I wasn't a huge fan of The Life Aquatic, and you you took us to task over that, <laughs> if, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I sent in a, I think I sent in a a um, dictated but not read um, voice message <laughs> uh, to uh, to tell you why The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is Wes Anderson's uh, masterpiece. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I I fondly remember that. Hopefully. I can make it up to you this week. My opinions about the French Dispatch won't uh, won't raise the same ire. At least let's let's hope <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, listeners, Joshua Wilson's voice is probably one that you've heard if you have listened to his podcast. He is a film critic, a teacher, and most importantly, the co-host of the podcast See Here Brother, a monthly podcast in which Josh and his brother get together to talk about a film that Josh's brother has never seen, and a book that Josh has never read. And they they discuss that at length. It's a really cool podcast. You should check it out. Uh, Joshua, I am really excited to, to talk with you uh, about The French Dispatch uh, this week because, like I said, you are a, a big Wes Anderson fan and expert. And uh, 
this is definitely a film that is going to uh there, there's going to be a lot to talk about we'll just, yeah. we'll just put it that way it's jam-packed that's for sure the french dispatch or maybe i should give the full title here the french dispatch of the liberty kansas evening sun is in a lot of ways quintessentially andersonian meticulously composed frames a self-consciously literary screenplay performances by Anderson favorites such as Bill Murray and Owen Wilson, the list goes on. But in at least one way, Anderson does something he's never done before. He's made an anthology film. The French Dispatch tells a handful of self-contained stories, each one framed as an essay in an issue of the magazine, of which Bill Murray's Arthur Howitzer Jr. is the editor. Or, I guess, was the editor is the way to put it, the film opens with the revelation that Howitzer has died, which means the end of the magazine as well. This lends each reporter's story within the film an elegiac cast as it reveals not only the events of the story being reported, but also the editorial care that Arthur Howitzer took in bringing it to print. By the end of the film, Anderson is hoping that we'll not only have digested the stories themselves, but also internalized something about the French Dispatch's philosophy of storytelling, and by extension, Arthur Howitzer's philosophy of storytelling, and maybe by extension, perhaps Anderson's philosophy as well. So Joshua, like we said, this is a, a very dense film. There's a lot going on here. And as that summary probably suggests, this is in some ways possibly a very personal film for Anderson, or at least it reflects a lot of his very particular personal interests. So my question for you to get a start as we talk about this film is, do you think that the way that Anderson frames this in the anthology film format works here? Yeah, I do. I think, um, I mean, obviously it's the in source of inspiration is the New Yorker magazine, which is the model for the magazine, the French Dispatch, that's the, you know, the title of the film. Um, and it has that sort of quality of reading a, a literate magazine like the New Yorker of kind of flipping through and finding an interesting story about you, you know, you, you just don't know what you're going to encounter next. And the film really does that, uh, have that feeling, especially upon your first viewing, but it also clearly is very, um, tightly interlocked between these these stories and the themes that that he develops about um the the nature of artistic inspiration and the um experience of art in the world and how that um how that affects people so yeah i think the anthology format is um is good here and it's it's interesting to see him branching out into that um a little bit because it's as you said i think it's it's a departure from any of his previous films in that sense yeah it's it's definitely it's intentionally esoteric in the way that i don't know i guess a, a new yorker cartoon is esoteric like you you take it in and it's not particularly interested in being anything other than itself it's not the sort of of work that is interested in um, in pandering to the audience or in doing something that the audience is is necessarily going to immediately know like oh this is this is a certain kind of thing that I know that I'm going to like it's it's more just interested in presenting 
like a like a New Yorker story, you know, there's there might be a, a very lengthy uh, essay or profile of somebody that the reader has never heard from or heard of. Yeah, and the idea is that the strength of the of the writer's craft and the the natural interest in just learning something new about a certain corner of the world will be enough to to bring the uh, the audience along. In the case of the New Yorker, obviously the reader. In the case of this film, the the viewer. And you know, it, it is fun watching Anderson kind of essentially free himself from the shackles of needing to tell a you know a single story from beginning to end mm. over the course of you know about two hours. He you know and and kind of let himself play a little bit more with just doing whatever he finds interesting in terms of visuals and just trusting that the strength of his craft and his his eye for compositions and his way of drawing rhyming themes out of each one of these stories, trusting that those will be enough to carry the film uh, even when, you know, even when there's not a whole lot there in terms of traditional story structure. His epitaph will be taken verbatim from the stenciled shingle fixed above the door of his inner office. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. (laughs) The Kremens story, revisions to a manifesto. We asked for 2,500 words, and she came in at 14,000, plus footnotes, endnotes, a glossary, and two epilogues. It's one of her best. (laughs) Sazerac. Impossible to fact check. He changes all the names and only writes about hobos, pimps, and junkies. These are his people. How about Roebuck Wright? His door's locked, but I could hear the keys clacking. Don't rush him. The question is, who gets killed? There's one piece too many, even if we print another double issue, which we can't afford under any circumstances. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. Really? Don't cry in my office. Yeah, it's an interesting concept to take... um, to make an adaptation not of say a novel or a short story but of the form of a magazine itself you know and to say can i translate the form of a magazine into the a totally different medium of film and um i think he does it pretty successfully and there's a lot of really interesting ways in which he does it but um I think one of the things that could get lost in just talking about the film in this way or describing it is just how really, really funny this movie is. Like, <laughs> I was laughing my derriere off the entire film just about. Um, from the very first time that they're, uh, they show the um, kind of the title card for the first um introductory segment and um it's uh, it's it's to introduce the town that this uh the film is set in and that the fictional magazine is published from this town of ennui sur blase and the <laughs> the way that the title card for that introductory little travelogue thing is it says local color and it's the the background photograph is like completely drab there's not a bit of color in it and it says local color and there's a 
colorful bicycle in the front, but that's it. And I just, you know, that kind of pun and, and that kind of like gag, if, if you're not going to find that funny when you come into it, you know, uh, then it may not strike you funny. And of course, you know, humor is not, <laughs> humor is subjective uh, above a lot of other uh, artistic considerations. And, but, you know, to me, this was just a hilarious movie. I mean, I was definitely partial to the to the joke right at the beginning where it talks about Arthur Howitzer receiving an editor's burial. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's just like this this barren patch of land. It's just like one grave. And, you know, I'm my day job is as an editor. I just, you know, so that kind of tickled me. And I think that that's kind of maybe the way Anderson kind of just approaches filmmaking in general is just if something tickles him personally, he's that's kind of what he chases. And he's not as interested in making sure that the audience is brought along for that. I mean, if he, he definitely presents it in a very loving way, everything is so lovingly crafted, but if you're not the sort of person who finds the thought of an editor's burial, you know, just humorous to begin with, or you're not the sort of person who gets tickled by a French town being named Ennui, you know, there, there's not, there's only so much that Anderson is going to do to meet you halfway. You're either on board with it or you aren't. And I think that's kind of what is a linchpin of what I'd like to talk to you about, at least kind of at the beginning of this conversation, because I found myself going back and forth while watching this movie about whether the, the dedication to a, a very, uh, idiosyncratic personal vision and a certain aesthetic, whether it was sufficient on its own to hold my interest. And I mm. think the film really, at the beginning, I was I was really on board with it. And then there were parts of it where it did begin to lose me a little bit. And I'm kind of curious to know, was was this true of you did, or or were you on board for, for the entire thing? Because I was, I, I came out of the film respecting it but I'm not sure it's the sort of film that I, I could love for, for mm. various reasons. And we can maybe get into those later, but I really want to get your take on that. Yeah. I, I don't agree with that. Um, I was on board from beginning to end really um, because I think one of the things about Wes Anderson's um, filmmaking style is that you know, obviously he leans into the the artifice. He leans into the overly composed uh, shots. He leans into the um, incredibly detailed and crafted backgrounds and colors and all of this. But I think that this um, extreme stylization that he uses is kind of a way of smuggling in a lot of interesting ideas um, about the nature of art and the nature of our experience with art. I mean, specifically cinematic art. The way I, I think in this case, he's particularly using um, the magazine format as also a sort of substitute for for filmmaking, which is obviously his medium. And, and um, 
to give an example, when um, Adam, uh, sorry, when Adrian Brody's character, um, who's an art dealer, kind of uh, presented as not not really a fraud, but sort of shallow, and really only interested in it for the money, supposedly. Um, when he comes to talk to the the artist Benicio del Toro's character, who's in jail, he tells him at one point, you know, your your painting. He he want he wants to buy his painting. Your painting is for sale, and uh, the artist says, "No, it's not." And they argue back and forth, and then he tells him, you know, it is for sale. It's what makes you an artist, selling it, you know, which to me is obviously a satire on the idea of, of um, commercialization of art. But if you think about the film industry, I mean, the kinds of movies that Wes Anderson makes can't be made without a big commercial um, film studio. You know, he's he's a sort of like an independent filmmaker, but really he's always got the resources of, you know, of studios behind him. And therefore, he can't be an artist if he's not selling his art. So there's a sort of an irony there. And it's it's a funny line in the movie, but that's the kind of idea that I think he's smuggling in underneath the stylization and underneath all of the jokiness of of the movie as well. And there's similar things that run throughout the film that um, they, they come up regularly. So it did keep me, keep me going with it all the way through all of the three main stories right to the end. There, there is a tension that he, he suggests there between, you know, art as, as commerce or, or, or not even necessarily art, but uh, because not all, not all of these, uh, these stories have, you know, deal directly with the concept of, of, of art. The, the second story I think it's called revisions to a manifesto mm-hmm. is uh, more about political convictions. So right. the, uh, the writer is uh, played by Francis McDormand. She's reporting a story about this student revolutionary named Zeffirelli, which yeah. is, you know, just a, what a, what an Andersonian name. Um, but um, uh, played by Timothy Chalamet. And this is a, um, in this story, there he's obviously he's trying to write this political manifesto to and he's this leader of a of a student revolution of sorts which is supposed to kind of call to mind the the student unrest uh in in france in uh i believe the 1960s um and the students are grumpy or the children are grumpy right very grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is again it's doesn't deal directly with with art but it does the, the way the the story goes and the note especially on which it ends kind of um raises the question you know is doing something for the sheer love of it is is that enough you know is is it enough to simply do do something just because you think it's the right thing or is it also important for other considerations to uh, really figure prominently into the way you go about it? And that's, again, obviously very revel- relevant to questions of, of the artist. You know, how much of it, how much of Wes Anderson's work should be done just because for the love of the game, so to speak, and how much of it is, to, does he need to sort of bow to pecuniary concerns of the realities of the filmmaking business? 
um, you know, the the different writers who are working on this uh, issue of the French Dispatch, you know, Bill Murray's editor kind of has to balance the fact that, you know, they're kind of veering sometimes wildly off the the subject. They're the piece that they're they're turning in is much, much longer than it can actually fit into the uh, the allotted space in that issue of the magazine. And he's kind of having to deal with, well, how do I balance all of this? And I think what I appreciate about this film is that Anderson, he doesn't really cast one impulse or the other as the good impulse, right? Like it's not, it's not like, you know, the, the editor is the bad guy. It's the, the, uh, the writer who's following their muse, so to speak, who's, who's the hero, the student revolutionary who is, you know, just carried away by his passion is great. But also, maybe he should learn how to actually, you know, turn a phrase to, you know, actually sell his message to the people who are hearing it. You know, convictions aren't necessarily the be-all and end-all. There has to be something else entering into it as well. And I think that exploring that tension is part of what makes this film uh, compelling to watch. Well, in that that central section, I'm I'm not completely sure um if i know what the coherent like statement is or that he's even trying to make one uh, but as you said it is more focused on this concept of politics but even within that um you have the timothy chalamet character um being critiqued by the women in his life for making his manifesto which is supposed to be a political document either too poetic or not poetic enough or say, you know, it's poetic in a bad way, which is one of the funny uh, subtitles there, you know? So even there, and, and then when he interacts with his um, younger girlfriend, you know, they have sort of a disagreement about whether or not they can still have this um, pop music in their lives while this revolution is going on. So can they put Tip Top, that's this pop artist, can they have his poster up there along with this um, other revolutionary guy who's this inspiration, his poster, or can it, must it be just one or the other? So there's still is this kind of, I think Anderson is playing with the, um, the idea of, well, what, you know, in art, what is the role of politics and how can those two things in, you know, if you've got a, an important political um, movement going on in your life right there, well, do, do you have to set aside all other um, kind of more vain pursuits at that time, you know? And um, I don't think that he's necessarily answering that. He may be kind of making a joke out of the whole concept of that question it, altogether, but... Um, even in that section, which is the least overtly about art, he still, again, smuggles in a bit um, of, of questions about that. And, and even if you remember, they make that um, story of that one student who wants to burn his his uh, army patch into a, a play within the, within the framework of that story, too, a stage play. So there's still is is there's still those themes of um, of different 
art forms and how they interact going on even in that that story there it it does sort of suggest the question what is what is you know why what is the point of art i guess like yeah. why what is the point of wes anderson making this extremely formalized stylized film about you know about making art you know what what is the point of it is it enough just to simply enjoy something does it have to have an object is it somehow is is there are there greater concerns than that you know if if there are other important things going on in the world is it is it a vain pursuit like you said to enjoy a pop song or to you know indulge your your affection for meticulously composed frames within a mm-hmm. very quirky uh film vision like how w- which master are you serving here you know what what is do you do you live to make art or you know it does does art provide you your purpose or do you um derive your purpose from other things in arts just sort of a sideshow those are all kind of questions that i don't think that the film really asks directly but it kind of invites the the audience to ponder those things kind of mostly because as you're what you know while i was sitting in the theater at least the experience of watching this film you're kind of like wondering okay but where is all this going how do all these things tie together you kind of wonder well what is this all building up to and the act of making you wonder those sorts of things is how anderson causes you to sort of reflect on these larger questions that we're talking about here yeah, and, and he kind of brings that back full circle in the third um, of the longer stories of the anthology about the police chef um, because the I think kind of the heart of the film is in um, Chef Nescafier's um, speech that he gives after he has kind of heroically um, done a heroic uh, act and he's been injured, he makes a speech about, um, basically he says he's not brave, he just wasn't in the mood to be a disappointment. And But he says that after talking about how he had experienced this new flavor, and it, in a very funny but poetic way. Um, he, it's a beautiful speech. Yeah, he describes this flavor... Of, of poison that he ingested right and um and that was part of his art and being put into action in in order to save this boy that had been kidnapped it's kind of a complicated story without summarizing <laughs> that part but and it but um but at any rate i think that 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 speech kind of brings it back to at least the question it doesn't like answer it and tie it in a bow but it it brings that question again in a totally different context of what is the meaning of art in our in our lives and can it be you know really meaningful or is it just uh a kind of light entertainment that distracts us from the things that are important in our lives i i mean and before we go further you're right that that is an extremely (laughs) complicated portion of the of the film so we're not even we're not even trying to give uh, synopses of the various 
stories within this story just because you know that that's you you kind of have to experience it yeah. uh in the film rather than hearing it summarized because it almost doesn't make sense to hear just the bare facts of the stories and one thing that's really interesting about actually this third this third story that you're that w- you just mentioned is that the way that it's framed to us is Jeffrey Wright is the reporter and he's been assigned to write about this this master chef and kind of his craft and and what makes him so great but the bulk of the story is taken up with this episode of the police commissioner's son being kidnapped and the efforts to to recover him safely so it's almost like this this uh essay that is specifically supposed to be about somebody's art kind of gets distracted by other real world yeah quote unquote real world concerns and that's maybe wes anderson slyly you know reflecting how in the real world often you know you, you don't have time to care about some things because real life is is happening to you and you kind of you have to deal with the the mundane or the tragic and there's not really necessarily time to consider the the quote-unquote finer things and yet those finer things are still extremely important yeah and it's funny that you say you know you contrast it with real life because when you're actually watching these movies i mean one of the the stylistic hallmarks of wes anderson is to make is to put the artificiality of the storytelling in your face as a viewer you know he makes it look really fake. He he points out to you some of the things that normally um, directors try with their style to make invisible, directors and editors, you know? I mean, even something like in the first story when um, I think a kind of a key moment in terms of understanding Wes Anderson's aesthetic is when um, the artist character who's a prisoner is being played as a young man by Tony Revolori, and then mm-hmm. he gets replaced as an older man with Benicio del Toro. But when that happens, it's not just one of these, okay, well, you know, flash forward. They literally come, the two actors come face to face on the screen, and they kind of like tag team, and like he takes his name tag, like literally tag team, like his name tag, <laughs> and he, he takes his place, and the other guy. And when they do that, you can see that not only do they not really look alike, they're like not at all the same height, the same build, like the two actors are nothing alike. And so he's saying, he's saying like, look, this is the kind of um, things that we do in film that normally you're supposed to suspend your disbelief, but I'm going to put them right in your face and make you confront the artificiality of the nature of what you're looking at. You know, that's a really key aspect of anderson's aesthetic yeah the and you're right that i i maybe i inadvertently misspoke when i talked about you know contrasting art with with real life because i think what anderson does at his best is he reminds us that it's very it's very much real life it's very human to to make things Mm -hmm. to create artificial representations of the world around us the things that we feel the things that we ponder 
And so even something so self-consciously artificial as the French Dispatch, where it's really more in love with the the meticulous crafting of the language. I mean, Jeffrey Wright's narration of this third story is just extremely eloquent and you know right as an incredible actor and he sells it so well but it's almost like anderson is really much more interested in the language in the words themselves more so than in the specifics of the story that it's telling and and trying to like tell the straightforward kidnapping story that is less important than just listening to jeffrey wright's magnificent voice saying those words in that particular sequence and I think that's something that Anderson does that really not any other director does, which is to, by lampshading the artifice that he's working with, he also makes us contemplate, well, it is very human to mm. to make these these ersatz imitations of the creation around us. Yeah, it's 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 an ironic technique, but I think it works in the same way that his use of humor works. It's it's a way of um, getting very serious ideas in front of you in a way that you're not expecting. Um, and you know, speaking of his language, his use of language, I think this is probably his most interesting script of any of his films in terms of the language. I mean, for a filmmaker that also has such a keen visual style to have such a well-honed um, literary uh, script at the same time. That's not something I think that you see too much in films, like just broadly speaking, is something that has such a great uh, set of dialogue and, and monologues, I guess you could say, because it's kind of read essays in a lot of cases, as well as the the, you know, uh, the so so well composed visual style. Yeah, he's he's more than just a a director. He's he's a wordsmith as well in his own right. And uh, I think, at least for me, uh, the experience of watching an Anderson film isn't exactly like a a novel right. in in a certain sense. But it it does. There's a certain richness to the language that does. At, at least for me, put to mind, put into mind the the experience of like sitting down with a writer who's just got a very sure hand with the English language and just allowing yourself to be taken along on a ride with him. And I think that Anderson does something similar both with his his screenwriting and with with his images. Yeah, especially this film. I mean, uh, some of his other films are a little more quippy than this, but this movie really lets him just play with with language at length because of the the way that it's set up the the that, I guess that's one other way that the um an, that anthology form you know imitating the magazine plays in its favor um you know to get back to the first question you asked is that allowing those longer um stretches of dial of uh, dialogue or or speeches uh from from actors like Jeffrey Wright even though most of the actors that are in this movie, you know, just are basically cameos. Some of the most well-known ones just kind of pop in for a line or two. But, you know, the ones that do get lengthy speeches are, are worth listening to. Yeah. And uh, film 
definitely worth watching. And there's so much more we could say about it, but I think we'll we'll call it there for this episode's purpose. Listeners, that is our review of Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. If you've had a chance to see this film and you have thoughts about it, that's there's a lot to think about with this film and to chew on. So I hope that if you have had a chance to see it, you'll let us know your thoughts. You can email them to us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet them to us at cbelievepod, that's P-O-D on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, as always. This episode is brought to you in part by HarperCollins Focus publisher of some of your favorite audiobooks and authors like country music superstar Reba McIntyre, Zachary Levi, Joanna Gaines, Luke Russert, Willie Nelson, and so many more. In honor of June being Audiobook Appreciation Month, explore all these authors, current deals, new releases, and more at harpercollinsfocus.com audiobooks. But for now, we are reaching the end of the show, Josh, and this is traditionally the part of the show where each of us shares something from the world of television or film that we think our listeners would really very much enjoy. So uh, what recommendation did you bring for us this week? Yeah, um, I have a film that has a very tenuous connection to The French Dispatch because as I was watching it, uh, I saw in the opening credits that it was the screenplay was based off of a article that was in the New Yorker, and it's um, uh, Nicholas Ray's 1956 film Bigger Than Life. Uh, it stars James Mason uh, as a teacher who has a kind of rare Ill- ailment that causes him a lot of pain, and at the time in the mid fifties, he starts on what was then a very experimental, um, treatment of cortisone and he becomes addicted to cortisone and also starts behaving in increasingly psychotic ways. So it's kind of a domestic, almost melodrama, but it's also a very expressionistic film from Nicholas Ray. Um, and it's, you know, an early treatment of the issue of um, mental illness and also drug dependency and addiction. But it's also something I don't see talked about quite as much is the depiction of, um, well, they also, people will talk about the depiction of suburban life, but it's also the fact that he's a teacher is kind of interesting because, um, the way that that plays out along with these other uh, tensions is 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 very interesting to me in particular as a teacher and seeing this kind of view of it um, in this Eisenhower era. So anyways, that's I would highly recommend uh, this film um, from 1956, uh, Bigger Than Life. Mm, that's a really uh, good recommendation. I'm actually excited to check this one out because I'm not familiar with with this one at all. So uh, I am really excited to, you know, add that to, to my list and, and check it out because I have not seen, uh, I, I don't know that I've even seen any of Nicholas Ray's films and, you know, maybe that should be a shame faced confession, no. but there it is. And, and this, that one sounds in particular really interesting. Yeah. Well, um, my recommendation for this week is going to be, uh, from a director that probably has a lot, uh, uh, 
in common with Wes Anderson, at least in terms of some of his visual predilections. And I'm thinking, of course, of the Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu. Both he and Anderson share this this preference for compositions that are are very uh, centralized on the human figures, the in centralized in the frame, the compositions being very flat and very formal. And I, I like Ozu's films a lot, but I've never recommended his 1959 film Floating Weeds on the show before. Mm. And I think that that would be a really great one for, for listeners to check out. It's about this uh, this traveling theater troupe. They, they do traditional Japanese theater. They go from town to town. And they arrive in this one town and sort of the, uh, the, the front man, I guess, if you will, for the troupe uh, discovers that... Uh, he has an illegitimate son that he fathered with uh, a woman in that village uh, many, many years before. And the film just basically follows uh, him as he you know, ha- realizes this, as he kind of comes to terms with what that means both for his past and for his future. And it's just, you know, like any Ozu film, it's just this really warm look at at people uh caught in in social situations that you know are not of their own making and just examining what they do with with themselves in that sort of context uh i think it's really wonderful and you know we were talking a little bit about the esoteric nature of of the new yorker and of the french dispatch and there's a little bit of that in in this film as well when uh, these these travel this traveling troupe of of actors realizes that the traditional form of theater that they're they're uh, presenting to the people aren't it's not really in fashion anymore. Not that many people are interested in it, and so that's something that they have to come to terms with as well. So uh, lots going on in this film. That's uh, 1959's Floating Weeds, directed by Yasujiro Ozu. Nice. I actually I seen the. Uh the silent original version of that that he made, but I haven't seen the the later version. Oh, I, I'm the exact opposite. How is the the silent version? Um, like it's does, good. I, I know, know that he remade Ozu. it, but I didn't know much yeah. about it. Yeah, it's Ozu, so it's it's good. Although it's been a few years since I saw it, so I don't have a fresh um, review of it for you, but I have seen it. Okay, well, um, that can maybe I'll, I'll I'll count that as a a secondary recommendation. One, so yeah. there's three recommendations there on <laughs> on the episode this week. Well, uh, Josh, it's been really great having you on the show. I Thank really you. enjoyed our conversation quite a bit. Um, if any of our listeners are interested in checking out some more of your work, you know, out there on the web, or you know, uh, how would they best find you, your writing, your podcasting? What would you like to highlight for them? Yeah, um, I have a kind of a inactive blog, fforfilms.net, but right now um, you could follow our our podcast at See Here Brother. Um, that's C-S-E-E-H-E-A-R uh, Brother on Twitter. Or um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Magadizer. Um, if you can figure out what that means, then... Um, you get a no prize, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to find me. Um, I'm always happy to talk film on Twitter or, or anything. And, and our podcast is available on, um, really any 
any podcast service that that you subscribe to to like the one that you found this wonderful podcast on already oh well that's 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 really great and i can heartily rec- recommend to our listeners that they uh they find that they track you down on, on twitter and give you a follow you're you're a, a fun person to chat with thank you about movies whether it's you know in a, in a podcast or, or or over over the Twitter, you're one of the good ones. Thank you. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> well, listeners, that is our episode for this week. Seeing and believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and I'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.